0: Romans chapter 5, it is that forward look, that hope that's been given to us in Christ that I'd like us to spend a few moments examining this morning. We had it read for us there in chapter 5, and we covered at least in bulk this portion months ago. I just want to put your nose on one aspect of it this morning. Therefore, the passage begins, chapter 5, verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have four things that he enumerates. The first, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who's come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ has peace with God. Some uh, wonder, what do I need that for? I don't have a problem with him, and chances are you're wrong. In fact, we're born at war with him. And the battle is all about who has the right of supremacy over our souls, us or him. And when we come to the saving knowledge of Christ, the battle ends. We submit, and he receives us as his own. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder, do you have peace with Him this morning? Or are you at arm's length? Is it the peace of mere distance? Or is it the peace of being received into the sweetest fellowship? Because that's what He wants for us. Secondly, through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand The idea is that the believer stands always in a place where he can feel the warmth of the sunshine of his smile, even when we really blow it. He never turns his own away. Never. And thirdly, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's what I want to unpack for you this morning. But fourthly, more than that, he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. How? Well, knowing that suffering, if you're his, produces endurance. And endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I wonder, believer, do you live in the fullness of his love being poured into your heart today? That's what he wants. Not to taste it at a a distance, but to revel in it. But hope shows up here in, in both number three and number four. Number three again, uh, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Hope always portends something good yet to come. You don't hope for bad things. You hope for good things. Hope always has a pleasant concept to it. Not all promises are good, but hope is always good. And in view of today the resurrection of Christ from the dead that we're celebrating today, we recognize the fact that believers have hope for the future that's predicated on that resurrection. Uh, a genuine hope that that takes us through everything. And here, as he says, we are to rejoice and therefore live in the hope of glory. But what does that mean? Glory's kind of a nebulous religious term, isn't it? glory's just kind of all right I'll pour into it whatever I think I want to pour into it I'm not not really sure what's glory but that is something that he wants us to know entirely put your finger here in Romans 5 and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3 for just a moment 1 Peter chapter 3 Peter helps us pick up on this idea just a a little bit more I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll pick up in verse 3. The apostle writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. There's that word again. And it's a living hope. It's not just an idle hope. It's something that's vital and alive and something we depend on. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's where this whole thing resides, is in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That's how we know it's steadfast and sure, as absolutely sure as his resurrection is. That's how sure our hope in the future is. What is that hope, though? He enumerates it a little bit in verse 4. Well, it's to an inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And what's the impact of uh, of that on us now? Well, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. There's probably no one in this room who hasn't been grieved by various trials and is in the uh, a place of grief, either greater or lesser, right now over things in life. But even now, this hope is meant to sustain us so that we can rejoice, though now for a little while your trials will only last a little while. I don't mean a little while in terms of human years, but in comparison to eternity. Oh, it's just a smidgen. Just a blip on the radar screen. No, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith... More precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with, with joy that is inexpressible and filled with, there's that glory word again. Obtaining even now, meaning you've secured now the outcome of your faith that is the salvation of your souls. We are to live in the hope of glory that has been given to us by virtue of his death and resurrection and looks forward to the day of its fulfillment when he returns. Now, as we've been working through the book of Romans, those of you that have been here, you know that we already have a little bit of that glory right now, don't we? We've already been able to partake of it. We already have, by virtue of his grace, heard and believed the gospel. Those of you that have heard it today and have given your hearts to Christ, you've heard it and you've believed it. And as a result of that, your guilt has been removed. Man, it's good to live with a clear conscience Do you realize how many times the New Testament talks about the fact that for the believer, our conscience is cleansed so that we don't walk around forever just loaded down with guilt and shame over things that have happened? That isn't where we live. We live with a clear, cleansed, purged conscience by the blood of Christ. He takes the guilt and the shame. And we know that our condemnation's been nullified. We can't be condemned again. And we've been justified by grace through faith. We've been declared righteous already, believer. Not hoping someday I'll get righteous, but knowing that He's declared us righteous already with His at His holy tribunal and said, the fulfillment of that you'll get in time. We have peace with God as we read in Romans Five And access to stand in His perpetual favor and joy in the promise of sufferings one day being redeemed. Every last one of them will be able to look at and say, Oh, that was so painful there and it's so delightful now. I know for some of you that seems impossible. That's the nature of faith. Trust Him. He proved that He can keep His word to that degree by being raised from the dead. He can't lie. And nothing can hold him back. Even the grave. We've, we've been made dead to sin's right to rule in us anymore. And we've been dead to the law's power to condemn us anymore. And we're secure in his spirit. And I suppose we could summarize that in one great phrase. We have been loved with an everlasting love. Love unbounded and full and free and anticipating the day when he'll be joined with us truly in wedded bliss. That's the image he gives us in his word. So then you've got to say, well, then what else is there? If I've got that much here and now, now most of us aren't really living in the fullness of what we got here and now. We still need to get that through our heads. That was last week when we talked about needing to be transformed through the renewing of our minds so that we really grasp the fullness of what it is that we have in this salvation in Christ here and now. But what else could there be? He, we've been saved and we have all those benefits, and yet he says we have the hope of glory. There's something yet to come. And it's wrapped up in this word glory, and what in the world does that mean? I'm going to point out just four things that it means this morning, just four. There's more, but there's four that I want to just bring before your eyes before we're done. I'm going to rattle them off quickly, and then we'll go back and work through them one by one. First of all, in the hope of glory, the first part of that hope is that we will see him as he is. The second part of that hope is that we will be like him. The third part of that hope is that we will reign with him, and the last part is that we will be with him. So just walk through those four with me, and we'll take the first two out of first John chapter three. We had that read for us too. First John, that little tiny epistle, chapter three, and just visit these words with me for a few minutes. 1 John chapter 3, let me pick up in verse 1, because verses 1 and 2 really go together. Actually, 1, 2, and 3, but I want to camp on verse 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is, is that it did not know Him. Beloved... We are God's children now. That's all the stuff we just covered in, in Romans. And what we will be has not yet appeared. That's the hope. There's even more to come, greater to come. I can't be condemned by the law. I'm not ruled by sin. I'm justified. I have peace with God. I stand in His favor. There's more? Oh yeah, yeah, there's more. It doesn't even appear what we will be. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. We're going to see Him as He is. This has been throughout the centuries what's been called the beatific vision. Now, some of you, if you've never been introduced to a phrase like that, that may be a little cumbersome for you. Beatific isn't a word you use in most everyday conversation. I've never once heard it when I was next to anybody in line at McDonald's. Nobody's nobody's ever said, let me have some of them beatific french fries. That's just probably not not the way it works. But beatific is a wonderful word. It's not common in our vocabulary anymore, but it's a wonderful word. It means that there are some things, and and in theology, one supreme thing, that is so supremely beautiful and wonderful to behold, that just by beholding it, you're supremely blessed. That's what it means. Now, I thought I had a little taste of that when I saw my wife walk down the aisle the day we got married. I saw that face, and I said, I am supremely blessed at this moment. Now, that is, now, I love my wife with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I got to tell you, it's nothing compared to the vision of him. Have you ever been someplace where you've seen something that is so amazing, so awesome, so glorious that you can only gasp? At it. Maybe at the edge of the Grand Canyon, I see they've just built that glass platform out over the edge of the canyon, three thousand feet above the canyon floor, and three inches thick of glass, and you can look on it and jump on it. And uh, we did that at the CN Tower. I thought Sky was about to have a heart attack. I'm on that glass thing. And she goes, "Normal people can jump on that, but you can't jump on that." And, and we were worried about what was going to happen there, but. But you, can you imagine the specter of seeing? I, the first time I was ever in an airplane, my dad and I, we had to flew out to Des Moines, Iowa to look. I was in the quartet then, and we were maybe going to buy a bus, and, and we got in the plane. I think, Dad, you were green pretty much the whole flight, if I recall. But, <laughs> but I was sitting next to the window, and we started to take off. And when we got up above the clouds, and you could see, it was, it was just awe-inspiring. And I was blessed by the specter of seeing this creation out in front of me. I, I go on the web and I go to the NASA website and see the pictures from the Hubble telescope, and you say, "Man, it's just—you don't know what to do with yourself. It just overcomes you to see the the majesty and the the the, the splendor and the glory. And that's nothing compared to seeing Him. It's nothing." He is so glorious, so wonderful, so awesome, that to see Him will make us supremely blessed for all eternity. See, That's the hope of glory, of seeing His glory, of seeing Him in all of His glorious majesty. Spurgeon, writing on this very passage, uh, said it is one of the most natural desires in all the world, that when we hear of a great and a good man, we should wish to see his person. When we read the works of any eminent author, when we're accustomed to turn to the to the front of the book and look for his portrait, when we hear of any wondrous deed of daring, we will crowd around our windows to see the warrior ride through the streets. When we know of any man who is holy and who is eminently devoted to his work, We'll not mind tarrying anywhere if we might but catch a glimpse of him who God is so highly blessed. And this feeling becomes doubly powerful when we have any connection with the man. When we feel not only that he's good to us, not only that he's benevolent, but that he's been a benefactor to us as individuals. Then, the wish to see him rises to a craving desire, and the desire is insatiable until it can until it can satisfy itself in seeing that unknown and unseen donor who has done such wondrously good deeds for us. I'm sure my brethren, you will all confess that this strong desire has arisen in your minds concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. we owe to none so much; we talk of no one so much. We hope and we think of no one so much. At any rate, no one so constantly thinks of us. We have, I believe, all of us who love His name, a most insatiable wish to behold His person. The thing for which I would pray above all others would be forever to behold His face, forever to lay my head upon His breast, forever to know that I am His, forever to dwell with Him One short glimpse, one transitory vision of this glory, one brief glance at His marred but now exalted and beaming countenance would repay a world of trouble. That's the beatific vision. That's the hope of glory. That we will see Him, says John in 1 John 2. The importance of this gift of seeing Him isn't, Too hard to imagine for us either, is it? When when you think about how little we really see and take in now and how we'll be prepared to drink him in in eternity. Uh, Right now, uh, St. Augustine mused on this a lot. Uh, Right now, we have in human experience the visible spectrum of light. We can see light and color here right now. But in fact, the human eye can only see less than a thousandth of the light that is actually available. What you and I see is just a tiny, tiny fraction of the light. And there, we will be equipped to do nothing but behold Him in the fullness of His radiance and glory. Can you imagine? You know, one of the things, if you can imagine us being perfected to the degree that we are made to take in the fullness of God's greatness rather than the little tiny sliver that we can handle here and now. That's the hope of glory. That I'll be able to see Him. Taste and touch and feel and smell the glories of heaven and the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Friday night, some of us gathered here and we watched again the passion of the Christ. And I know that when it was over, all I could think again was, I want to meet the one who did that for me. He paid everything so that I could be free. So that I could be forgiven and cleansed of every sin. I want to see him. He died for me. And John says, you'll get that. That's the hope of glory. You will see Him and you won't see Him through the defiled, damaged eye that you have here, but through the, the perfected humanity that He will give us in the resurrection so that we are created just to drink Him in. That's the hope of glory. Oh, I want to... See Him. Isn't that the the words of the hymn from so many years ago? Cornelius wrote it, R.H. Cornelius, When in valleys low I look toward the mountain height, And behold my Savior there leading in the fight, With a tender hand outstretched toward the valley low, Guiding me I can see as I onward go, When before me billows rise from the mighty deep, Then my Lord directs my ship. He does safely keep. And He leads me gently on through this world below. He's a real friend to me. And oh, how I love Him so. Oh, I want to see Him. Look upon His face. There to sing forever of His saving grace. On the streets of glory, let me lift my voice. Cares all past, home at last ever to rejoice. One of the great products of the fall, one of the horrendous things that has become ours as a result of our sin in Adam is given to us, hinted at in one place, First Timothy chapter 6. Uh, it's an amazing statement and it gets overlooked often. First Timothy chapter 6 and picking up in... Uh, yeah, picking up in verse 13. Let me work down. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of... Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made a good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Catch this. Who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be glory and eternal dominion. Amen. That God who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one can see, that's who you'll see beloved that's exactly what he's prepared for those who love him the opportunity to see him and in exodus chapter 33 and we won't turn for time's sake you remember moses plea that lord i want to see your glory and he responds but you you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live and in hebrews Twelve, we're told why that is because God is a, is a consuming fire. So to see him requires something supernatural. What is that? Well, we're told again in Hebrews 12 where he says strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The end result of our having been made righteous with the righteousness of Christ is the wonder of being allowed to behold Him face to face. No veil, no medium. The living God in all of His resplendent glory. This then, that's the first hope that we have that because Christ has been raised from the dead and and because He is ascended on high and will return that we can live in the anticipation of seeing him who is our hope himself in all of his resplendent glory he who is the hope of glory but first john carries the second one for us too first john chapter chapter 3 see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of god And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. That's the second hope of glory. Is that we will be like Him. This, in fact, is the chief end of our salvation. Since it's a fuller and higher restoration than even what we fell from most people don't even consider that fact they think that in in salvation god kind of pushed the reset button and we go back to being like adam oh no that's far too low get your thinking above that god has something better for you than being like adam before the fall Oh no, he's, he's got bigger things in store for you. Remember in Romans 3, our very need of the gospel is because all have sinned, and how does he define that? We have fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean? We've, in the fall, his image has been distorted in us. It's still there, but it's shattered and it's soiled and stained. It's terribly disfigured. That was brought on by our own hand. But Christ's redemptive power not only brings us back so that we're no longer distorted, but where we bear His image in a way we can't even begin to fully grasp now. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He, He does start to unpack it for us a little bit there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 I mean, do you really think this way? Is this really what, what captures your heart and mind? And we could contrast this with Genesis just as you, as you walk through it, but picking up in, in chapter 15, uh, we had it read for us all the way through this, this whole place, but let me, oh, where do I start? Where do I start? Can we start in chapter one and kind of work through? Probably not, huh? All right, so let's pick up in 35 and try and shorten it a little bit. Chapter 15. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. I mean, that's that's not the horrible part here when it's all said and done. And what you sow is not the body that is to be but a bare kernel, perhaps, of wheat or of some other grain. I, I get scared every time I think about that, and I see a watermelon seed, and I think, you can get that big green or red thing out of that little tiny seed. <laughs> yeah, that's the idea. Oaks out of acorns. And, and when we go into the ground, when we perish here physically, the resurrection, we're not going to be raised like the acorn that went into the ground. We're going to be raised like the oak, above and beyond. You sow what is a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he's chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is the same. There's one kind of flesh for humans and another for animals and another for birds and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. We were wondrously and gloriously made to live on this earth, but we will have to be wondrously and gloriously remade to live in the presence of the living God for eternity. That's a whole different category, a whole different order. Pick it up in verse 32. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, that's this physical body, is perishable. In Eden we were perishable, capable of corrupting what we had and dying. But in the resurrection, it's raised imperishable. Not just that it won't perish, but that it can't perish. We're going to be raised imperishable. Never again with the possibility of corruption or falling. Never again having to worry about that. It's done. Oh, We're going to be a whole different kind of critter. It's sown in dishonor. Back then we became dishonorable because of the fall, but it is raised in what? Glory. 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 What, What kind of glory? God's glory. We'll see that in a minute it's sown back then we die because of weakness but it's raised in power no weakness in the resurrection it's sown a natural body made to interact with this physical universe that we're in the the middle of right now but it's raised a spiritual body suited for the environment of heaven and to be with him for all eternity oh it's further down in verse 53 it's This present body, and as a result of the fall, was created perfect but mortal. But it will be raised immortal, never to die again. Remember, we just read that that it's God alone who's immortal. And he gives to us his own immortality that we might never perish. Look, Let me just make one more connection for you. It's in Philippians chapter 3 in this regard. I don't know that we give enough consideration to this, beloved. This is just stunning to me. Philippians chapter three, and you pick up in verse 20. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. You and I are just sojourners here. Short journey. Where we really belong is heaven. That's coming. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. That's where He's going to come from, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I get this, who will transform our lowly body, not just to a new one, catch the nuance here, to be like His glorious body. We'll be like Him. We'll have a resurrection body equivalent to Christ's own. I mean, you're not just going to be a bigger, better human being. You're going to be beyond that. Glorified humanity. Made like the Savior Himself. Oh, we don't become divine. But we share as much of His glory as He can give us apart from it. Absolutely. Who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. That's a simple statement because it can only be done by someone who has infinite power, omnipotence. And He will exercise the fullness of His omnipotence in making us like Him We'll be like Him, like a resurrected Lord in that sense. But even more, we will be like Him in holiness, in His character. Second Corinthians 4.16 says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away. Our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison." As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Beloved, we will bear in full the image of our glorious God and King being made like Him. Being made a bride, fit to be beside Him in every way. That's the hope of glory. That's the hope you and I have you this morning who are suffering physically and in weakness and ailing. Those who who know what it is to live with chronic pain or or perhaps even even a disease that, you know, is incurable and fatal or or just that, you know, you're near that time when you're going to pass off the scene. Put your hope in the fact that because Christ is raised from the dead, you have the hope of glory. You will be made glorious like He's glorious. You will shine like the sun. Well, that's what He has for you. That's what He has for all those who are, are His. We live because of the resurrection in the hope of glory, the hope of seeing His glory as it really is, the hope of bearing His glory, but it gets even better it gets even better, this is an impossible thought to me that He declares that we will even share His glory. Now, for some, that almost sounds blasphemous. All they can think is, wait a minute, there's Isaiah 48, 11, where he says, My glory I will not give to another. That—that That is a statement regarding the fact that he won't allow his name to be profaned through the disastrous results of Israel's rebellion, that he'll ultimately vindicate himself and be seen in his righteousness and faithfulness. It's equivalent to Philippians 2, 11, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. No? No, there's some something else here. It's, it's in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Turn over there just quickly. And... 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let me pick up in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead... The offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains, as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound, and therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. But it's verse 12 that, Bends the brain. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. How unbelievably humble and glorious is that picture. The idea here is that He brings His children right up into His throne to rule with Him. Beloved, that's where you'll be. Sharing His glory as the God of all. He he invites us to participate with Him in a way that's unimaginable in human words. Romans 8 puts it this way, that the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's what we are now. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. And catch the word... Fellow heirs with Christ, joint heirs, what does Christ inherit? If He's an heir of the Father, what does He inherit that we share in? Hebrews one two tells us, But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things. All things. That's where we go we become heirs of all things with him ruling and reigning in his throne we are joint heirs we don't get some separate secondary minimal inheritance he says no you get you get the fullness of what i have all of mine when when sky and i stood at the altar and we said those funny words to each other that we've tried to forget ever since about love, honor, and cherish, and obey, and all that, and I'm, I'm trying to keep the obey part. And, uh, and, uh, and we did that, but what happened the moment that we were pronounced husband and wife, to her, to her sad realization, everything I had became hers. She she was inheriting you know, all, we were just talking about this at breakfast this morning. She she told her friends back in Texas before they had met me, I'm going to marry a preacher and move to upstate New York and live in a double wide. And they they were just they were just terrified. Uh, I didn't have a whole lot to bring to the proposition, but all that I had was hers, and all that she had was mine. And beloved, that's how Christ weds his bride. And says to you, bride, you take my name and all I have is yours. Everything. Everything. All the treasures of heaven. All the treasures of glory. All the treasures of eternity. Everything. All right, so, so you don't have it all right this moment. Hang on, will you? There's the hope of glory. And you'll share his glory. That's why Ephesians can say that He has raised us up together, right? And placed us where? In His throne, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where does He sit? On the throne of the universe. That's where He sits. And that's where we will sit with Him. Not as administrative lackeys, but as the queen beside her king, wedded to him, given, given all the privileges of divine royalty, the hope of glory you that's the hope you and I have this morning because of the resurrection that we will we will reign with him. Well, the hope of glory, the hope of seeing His glory, the hope of bearing His glory in His image, the hope of sharing His glory, but there's even a a fourth one that's bigger yet. Hold on. It, It may not sound right off the top of your head, but as you think through it, it'll hit. And that is lastly, that we might enjoy Him. That we might enjoy Him. He has made us for the sole purpose of living in eternal pleasure by being with Him. Do you realize that? Do you realize that He wants to bring you to the place where you will never ever again suffer any kind of doubt, any kind of fear, any kind of pain, any kind of discomfort, any kind of confusion, any kind of loss, any kind of lack? None of it. To live perpetually in the eternal pleasure of His presence. There are certain foods I like. That's probably an understatement. There are, there are lots of foods I like. There are some that are more glorious than others. If you could give me a half gallon of ice cold milk a box of vanilla vanilla wafers and a can of ready-to-spread frosting so that you make little cookies out of the wafers with the frosting and the ice-cold milk, I could just eat that three meals a day, every day, all day, forever. Never get tired. Just take it in. Contrary to popular belief, I have not tried to do that. It's a... (laughs) It's really not so. I just I just got the results back on my, my physical this week, and my triglycerides are wonderfully low, uh, you know, 87 or something like that. But we were made, created in the resurrection to do nothing but drink Him in pleasurably, to have the sweetest, most glorious music be His voice in our ears. To have a vision so beautiful, so transcendent that that it's it makes us supremely blessed. To take Him in with our eyes. I love the picture in Genesis when Abraham, or, or Isaac, I'm sorry, is old and can no longer see and when his Sons come in, especially when Jacob's circumventing the process. He draws him close so he can smell his robe. He says, I I know who you are by the smell of your robe. I want the fragrance of his robes. I want to put my arms around his neck and and breathe deeply the fragrance of heaven. I want to touch him not because i don't believe the nails are there but i want to feel i want to hear him and see him and be held by him and know him to my everlasting pleasure and that's exactly what he wants for us that's what he wants for you if you've if you've still got those weird, antiquated, foolish, unbiblical notions of sitting on clouds and plucking harps and being perpetually bored. Get it out of your head. He wants us to be with Him. We'll bask in His manifested presence. Look at Revelation chapter 21. This is just such a sweet and glorious word and we barely think of it Revelation 21 and picking up in verse 1. John, as he's coming to the end of his great vision, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, see, this is it. Here's the supreme announcement of glory. The dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Oh, that's heaven. In Exodus chapter 33, right after the incident of Israel making the golden calf while Moses was on the mountain, after Moses comes down and expresses God's displeasure with them, God speaks to Moses and He says, tell them that because of this, I will not go up with them to the promised land. And the text says that they responded to this disastrous word. What does it mean that He won't be with us. In verses 15 and 16, Moses pleads with God and says, if you're not going to go with us, then don't let me go either. Because the only thing that separates us from any other people on the face of the earth is your presence with us? Oh, be with us. And God relents and says, yes. He then gives them the tabernacle. And there they can go and they can meet with him. But it's, it's kind of at arm's length. It's limited. His, his presence is behind the veil, hovering over the, the mercy seat, the cherubim. They can't, they can't really be with him. They can, they can be near him, but they can't be with him. It was so limited. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, when the children of Israel had, through their foolishness, taken the ark of God out into battle when, when God hadn't asked them to go into battle, and the ark was captured by the Philistines, one woman names her child as a result, Ichabod, which means the glory of the Lord has departed. His presence isn't with we- was the supreme grief for them, that He wasn't with them. In 2 Samuel 6, when David brings the ark back up, he dances before it because here was Israel's highest blessing, the presence of God returned to the people of God. In the book of Ezekiel, as the prophet prophesies, and, and, and the, the coming decline and, and the overthrow of his people of israel he sees the glory of god departing in successive moves further and further away from jerusalem it's the token of the worst curse that we have no presence of god as a matter of fact the the uh, the notion of hell itself is that we are banished from the glory of his presence the glory of His presence, the manifestation of it and all of its wonder and goodness. In Hebrews, we're reminded that, that into that holy of holies in the, the temple, into that second place, only the high priest goes, and he goes, but once a year. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people. And by this, the Holy Spirit indicated that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section, the first part of the temple is still standing, which he says in verse 9 is symbolic for our present age. Do I need to remind you of the words of Jesus then to the disciples in John chapter 14 when he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if it were not so, would I have told you this? In my Father's house are many rooms. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto Myself that where I am, you may be with Me. Think, child of God, some of you here, you've known Christ for 10, 20, 30, 40 years and you're still pretty much thinking in terms of when you get to heaven, you're kind of got, going to be like off in this corner somewhere and He'll be just there and like you'll be living in the same city but you won't really see each other except from time to time. No, He brings you home so that He can be with you. He desires to be near us close to us why because we're so lovable no because he's so loving because he loves us because he delights in us at his birth they called him emmanuel which means god with us but in the resurrection it is us with god where he is in the fullness of all things that He's created. He's thought out and wrought out the entire redemptive plan so that ultimately we can be close to Him. He wants you near. He desires to have us near Him in the highest possible degree, which is why the only figure Scripture can use for it eventually is that we become His bride. We're joined together with Him. In that perfect union for eternity. All day, every day, and all night, every night. For the ages of endless eternity with Him. He doesn't save us so that we can hide in some remote remote corner of heaven. But that we might be with Him where He is. And that's the highest hope of glory. The glory of His presence. To be awash in it. To be basking in it. In His manifest love and grace forever and ever and ever. Amen. Psalm 16 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See is glory to bear His glory in His image, to share His glory and to enjoy Him forever. The Westminster divines were right. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's what they want. They knew it. They understood it. That's the hope of glory, which is ours. Let me, let me close that off then with the words of Jude. So now, to Him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, because Christ has been raised from the dead, we have the hope of glory. Oh, may we keep our eyes fixed on it in this day. I do realize, Father, that there are those for whom the concept of being in your presence is not only not attractive now... The idea of being in your presence for eternity would be unthinkable and perhaps even torture. And that's simply because they do not yet know your love in Christ. They've not been reconciled to you. They can't imagine what it would be like because to them, you're not loving and sweet and glorious and forgiving and full of mercy and grace. Right now, they only know you as judge. And I pray that this morning you will, you will, right where they sit, right now as they contemplate these things, will confess their lostness to you and flee to Jesus because he's there waiting and will receive all who come and we'll cover them and forgive them in Your name, having paid the penalty in His own blood. And we'll draw them in and make them new creatures. I pray they'll see Him this morning and flee to Him. For He he has mercy and grace and refuses none who come. Oh, will, will today be the day I pray they won't wait to talk to somebody else or to to pray with somebody else or anything but right this very moment flee to you run to you Our first instinct with our sin is to hide but but you want us to run to you and there you don't condemn but you cleanse there you don't flog you forgive there you don't destroy You draw to your bosom. There, there in Christ, they find love unbounded. And for your children today, those here, each one, whether today be a day of just great rejoicing in and of itself, or today is a day still of wrestling with great sorrows and griefs, will you remind them that the hope of glory is yet before them? That we have great things here and now, but oh, what you have prepared for those who love you. Eye hasn't seen it. Ear hasn't heard. We haven't even been able to scratch the surface this morning. It's not one one billionth of how magnificent it will be with you. Will you fix their hearts and minds on it today and sustain them in it? As surely as He's risen from the dead, so sure are these promises and truths. Oh, we will see You and bear Your image and share Your glory and and lavish in it forever and ever. Oh, we pray these things this resurrection day in Jesus' name. Amen.